Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I have the pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Isaac McKeon Scarborough about his book titled Moscow's Heavy Shadow, The Violent Collapse of the USSR, published by Cornell University Press in 2023. This is a really helpful book, I think, for a lot of different scholars, a lot of different parts of historical analysis. Um, And really what it focuses on is explaining the collapse of the USSR and making a pretty persuasive case that um, this was more complicated, more ambiguous, and more violent than we might traditionally expect. Um, So tracing the years up to the collapse of the USSR and a bit afterwards focusing on Tajikistan, this book helps us understand more of the nuances and more of the actual everyday realities on the ground of the end of the USSR. So Isaac, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Uh, Of course. Uh, My name, so yes, is Isaac McCain Scarborough. I'm currently an assistant professor of Russian and Eurasian studies at uh, Leiden University here in the Netherlands, where I live. I received my PhD from the London School of Economics and Political Science uh, in international history. Uh, But before doing a PhD, I spent quite a number of years living in the former USSR and primarily in Central Asia, although as well as in Russia. Uh, and I often found in, in various places that I was working and with many of the people that I talked with, that they would provide accounts of life during the years of the Soviet collapse and during the collapse and the years after the collapse that really did not accord with what was available to read about that same period of time in academic and in, in non-academic histories. So there, there were these two very different narratives, uh, one that would be uh, sort of triumphalist about the West, one that would be uh, speaking primarily about the positive elements of reform, the positive elements of change. Uh, and then there was everything that I would hear from people who lived through that period of change, which was quite different and quite radically so in the sense that it was overwhelmingly negative and overwhelmingly focused on uh, aspects of destruction and violence. 
Uh, and I think this is where the basic idea for this book came out uh, of, which was that there, there was something not aligning uh, between reality as lived uh, and reality as depicted. So I'd really hope to try to uh, complicate the existing stories and, and provide a bit more of the narrative that I heard in places like Tajikistan. Mm. I think the book very much succeeds in achieving those aims. Um, and I think it's probably worth starting with a bit of a caveat that we're probably, hopefully, going to cover a lot of the main points, but that for all of the fabulous detail to really provide that complication and nuance, um, I'm going to direct listeners to the book itself uh, for all of those details. But before we get into at least some of them, could you tell us about I guess a bit more about why there was this discrepancy between the two types of inf- the two stories you were hearing. What? Why do you think that the violence and the pervasive violence um, involved in the collapse of the Soviet Union, including but not just in Tajikistan, has been so generally overlooked and ignored in the scholarship and in the popular Western media? I think there are a number of reasons for this, but they come together uh, under sort of uh, a few headings. Uh, And the first point uh, is that there's an emphasis from the very beginning in the West on the idea of positive change being part of Pirestroika, that's the reform program under Karpachov, of reforms to the USSR, and ultimately of the collapse of the USSR, that this is a forward movement, a movement away from uh, the nominally backwards ideas of socialism and of communism towards the more modern, uh, more developmental notions of capitalism. Uh, so this is in a way a good thing, and we should expect ultimately good consequences to come from it. Uh, you know, Gorbachev is very well vetted in the West. He's very well, uh, he's sort of a beloved figure uh, in Western circles during his period of leadership in the USSR and thereafter, uh, and his reforms are generally seen as well-intentioned. So with all of this, there's the idea that there should be positive results, and people, I think, as a result, look for the positive result. There's also a sense that it could have been much worse, uh, and this is uh, frequently cited in political science literature. It's also something you'll see in historiography, but uh, contemporaneously in the Balkans and in other conflicts, uh, there are, are uh, to some degree or another, more bloody conflicts, conflicts that sadly uh, cause the loss of more life than you'll see in particular conflicts in the USSR and the former Soviet republics. Uh, and so the idea is that the there may have been violence, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So in fact, it is generally not so bad overall. Uh And there's also a sense that there are many small disparate conflicts, but they're not part of a bigger whole, that they're somehow not connected into one larger wave of violence. And I think this is uh, generally thought of the case for two reasons. One, uh, because most of the conflicts are dealt with separately, people start to look for uh, differences in explanation. They start to look for particular reasons why a conflict occurred in a particular post-Soviet republic or post-Soviet location. Uh, So they look for specificities of life in, say, Tajikistan or specific specificities of life in Chechnya uh, or in Transnistria. Uh, And this leads uh, to an avoidance of the generality of the conflict that occurs and the generality of the causes of that conflict and how they may actually be based uh, on commonalities and similar experiences across the Soviet space uh, rather than specificities in one or another locale. 
Uh, and there's the final sort of piece of this is that in general, it seemed like the worst fears of the West, uh, which were a potential nuclear meltdown or the distribution of nuclear arms from Russia to other states uh, was avoided. So Russia itself seemed to be relatively peaceful from the perspective of uh, international conflict. It seemed to have control of its nuclear armaments. And this was ultimately the worry at the point of Soviet collapse. This was avoided. Uh, therefore, it wasn't you know, an, a source of major international violence or conflict. And therefore, it is seen as largely peaceful. Um, so all of these things together sort of coalesce, I think, in, in the Western imagination, uh, so that it is seen as this, you know, uh, non-event in terms of war or non-event in terms of violence. Um, but in practice, this, again, flattens a lot of conflicts into, you know, uh, essentially non-existence, and it overlooks a great deal of violence where it did occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, unfortunately, all those factors coming together. Um, So obviously there's benefit in and of itself in understanding what actually happened in Tajikistan. But your book goes further than that in also making a claim that figuring out what happened in Tajikistan is a useful case study for understanding the processes of collapse across the USSR more broadly. Can you tell us about Tajikistan as a case study in that sense? Yeah, I think Tajikistan for me was very valuable uh, in terms of understanding the Soviet wine processes uh, for two reasons. Uh, and I'll come to those two reasons in a second, but I should say that I was actually quite surprised um, by how clearly uh, the links between the local processes on the Republican level and the all-union processes that are often more discussed uh, was possible to to derive from the perspective of Dushanbe and Tajikistan. Uh, and actually one of the real surprising elements of the research is uh, how clear the overall picture became. Uh, But the reason that I think it is particularly clear uh, from the perspective of a place like Tajikistan uh, is again for two reasons. The first reason is that uh, Tajikistan's experience of Pedistroika, again, the the reform program from Gorbachev and the period that is often referred to as Pedistroika, the final five years of the USSR, hasn't been politicized to the degree that it has been in other countries. So uh, how the Republic underwent Perestroika, uh, what was said by its leaders, uh, what was really occurring in the economy has not been uh, sort of layered upon in the years since uh, with the sort of hindsight of history or the hindsight of nostalgia that says, oh, these things happened for a particular reason. Uh, So there's a sort of easier access to contemporaneous narratives from the period and contemporaneous evidence from the period, which is sometimes uh, covered up by this politicization in a place like Russia uh, or the more central locations. Um, And I think this makes it much more of a simple process to track, uh, let's say, the economic reforms that are passed in the period and their consequences in a sort of immediate way. So we can see uh, that there were reforms passed uh, say in 1987, uh, and already that these reforms are having consequences in a negative way in 88 and 89. Whereas in Moscow, this often gets hidden by uh, politicians in the late 80s or in the 1990s who might have a particular view on what should have happened from the reforms but didn't. Uh, there's also a second reason for this, uh, which is that uh, the Tajik Republic in the 1980s 
was in a particularly vulnerable position, essentially, uh, economically and politically. Uh, and it didn't have a great deal of resources available to it uh, on which it could draw when uh, the all union structures of the economy uh, and the political system started to break down. And this meant that the processes of economic collapse and later on social uh, uh, social degradation and then violence that occurred uh, occurred faster and they occurred with a bit more uh, immediacy in a way uh, than they did in other republics. But they represented essentially the front end of a wave uh, that then can be tracked both in Moscow and in the central uh, locations of the USSR and elsewhere. Hmm. That's a really helpful, um, I think, grounding in the case study and its utility um, across the USSR more broadly. Now that we have an understanding of kind of what the book's doing, the problem it's solving, um, the role Tajikistan can play as well as a case study, um, I think I'm probably going to switch to a bit more of a chronological organization for my next few questions. Um, And one thing I really appreciate about the book is that you don't just kind of start six months before the violence and kind of go, here's what happened. It's like, no, wait, there's there's stuff happening further in advance of that that nonetheless is really relevant and helpful. So to start us off on that bent, can you tell us about the, quote, fragile but stable status quo in Tajikistan in the early 1980s? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, one of the really uh, sort of sad but uh, surprising things about uh, the Tajik civil war when it occurs in the 1990s is that this is a place that nobody would have expected uh, large-scale internecine warfare and violence to occur. And certainly nobody in the USSR would have expected it. Uh, and this is because Tajikistan in the 1980s and the 1970s and during the period of developed socialism uh, is really one of the quietest and safest in many ways, right? most comfortable, calm and peaceful places in the USSR. It's a, you know, uh, some people in, in the USSR see it as a sort of political backwater, but at the same time, uh, you know, it, it's a place of, you know, calm and quiet development. Um, and this is this, what I, what I call a fragile, but stable status quo, because it is very stable. Uh, its economy is developing slowly, but each year there is sort of, uh, year on year, uh, growth. You do see, uh, generally, uh, standards of living is increasing uh, across the republic. People have access to greater and greater consumer goods, and this continues into the 1980s, uh, which is different than, than say, in, in many parts of Russia or the European parts of the USSR. Um, but at the same time, there are many uh, destabilizing elements, right? There's a cotton monoculture that keeps uh, the republic largely agrarian. There are standard rates of pay for the cotton that don't always... Uh, adhere to either world rates uh, or sort of world prices for cotton or necessarily the amount of labor that goes into collect the cotton. So people's incomes are r- relatively low by, by Soviet standards and actually quite low by international standards. Uh, many people are stuck essentially living in rural areas without access to uh, the amenities of life in uh, Soviet cities, even in Dushanbe. Uh, but it all, in a way, functions, and it is a functioning uh, society within the Soviet system, because in many ways, that same Soviet system, while creating barriers for its local development, also uh, provides a series of uh, financial, uh, economic, and political supports. So the leaders of, of the Tajik Republic in uh, Dushanbe can rely upon these supports. They can rely upon the idea that they will be 
supported if they go to Moscow with an initiative to uh, expand agriculture or to build a battery factory or to uh, develop a, a new arm of industry, right? And they are able to receive funding for this. Uh, and everyone in the economic system knows that enough funding will be provided to pay all the workers. They might not be paid as much as they should. They certainly are being paid less than the Soviet average. Uh, but the, the, the connections between uh, Dushanbe and Moscow hold, uh, and this allows the system to remain uh, stable, notwithstanding all of the destabilizing elements that are there. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Fragile, but stable, uh, very much describes it. Moving towards Moscow for a moment before we come back to look at the impact in Tajikistan. Um, you've obviously mentioned perestroika a little bit so far. Can you tell us more about the process um, through which that was created and promoted? Yeah, so the curious thing that I found comparing, uh, say, politicians and their views about reform in Moscow and those in a place like Dushanbe uh, is that the actual very idea that reform was necessary in the mid-1980s uh, is one that's not shared universally uh, across Soviet elites in places outside of Moscow. Uh, so for the elites, uh, those you know in the leadership of the Communist Party of Tajikistan, those in the Council of Ministers of Tajikistan, other politicians and the, the bureaucrats in the system, uh, there's in fact no need for structural reform again, from the perspective of, of Tajikistan and Dushanbe, uh, because the system keeps improving, right? So standards of living are improving year on year. Uh, economic growth rates are, you know, still significant. There's a, you know, uh, a notable increase, say, even in salaries every year, although it remains below the Soviet average. Uh, so there's a sense that things are working. It doesn't have to be changed in a fundamental way. Uh, but in Moscow, there is a sense that things are not working and that, in fact, the Soviet system uh, is not improving year on year. Uh, and there's actually an overwhelming view that by the mid-1980s, if not before, the system is in recession. Uh, the economic, uh, the economy broadly, although it's showing growth, is in practice not growing, uh, that consumer uh, access to consumer goods for the population is not increasing and standards of living is not increasing. So there, there's a dissonance between the numbers that are being received by, say, the Politburo and the people around Gorbachev uh, and their view on life, which is that it's much more negative than the numbers uh, indicate. And in a way, they're also not wrong uh, because from the perspective of uh, the urban population of Moscow by the mid-1980s, life has stagnated. Uh, standards of living aren't not improving on a year-on-year -year basis. They're more or less stable. There is growth in the economy, uh, but GDP growth per capita in an urban place that has already reached a relatively high Soviet standard of living uh, is not improving in a way that's noticeable to the citizens of uh, a city like Moscow or Leningrad or some of the other major cities in Russia. Um, and this is because they had already reached a sort of saturation point. The availability of goods that were produced by the Soviet system uh, was already there for them. There wasn't much more for them to provide. Uh, and so they were being paid increasingly more. Their salaries were also going up. Uh, but there were more and more rubles available to these urban uh, Soviet citizens uh, that they could do nothing with. Right? They already had a refrigerator. They might have already had a car. They already had basic... Uh, consumer goods, their houses were well-equipped, right? their children were going to good schools. Uh, they didn't know what to spend their money on. And in fact, the availability of rubles in the uh, absence of 
goods to spend them on created a great deal of consumer frustration. Um, and this is sort of the very basis on which uh, Gorbachev and his economic advisors uh, create the idea of structural reform, that something needs to be changed because lives are not improving. The system is not improving uh, the average worker's lives. It's certainly not improving the elite's lives. Um, so something must be done. And the economic program that is developed is essentially one uh, that is meant to improve uh, consumer outcomes. It's an economic program that goes back to the 1960s and references the so-called Kasigan reforms, uh, which were similar economic reforms developed under Alexei Kasigan, then the chairman of the Council of Ministers of the USSR under Brezhnev, uh, but which had largely been limited in their impact. Uh, but in fact, some of the same economists that worked on Gorbachev's reforms in the mid-80s had worked on those 1965 reforms. And in both cases, the idea is adding elements of market uh, systems to the Soviet economy in order to boost the output of consumer goods. So rather than rely upon state-owned and operated enterprises, which is essentially the basic unit uh, of production in the USSR, what we would think of as a large business conglomerate or as a factory, uh, the Soviet state suggests that it might be possible uh, to rely upon both uh, individual initiative, uh, maybe individuals making goods and selling them, uh, private businesses, what are eventually called cooperatives, uh, or uh, semi-privatized or uh, still state, uh, but market incentivized enterprises. So the reforms that are then passed under this program as it's developed uh, give greater leeway to enterprises to choose what products to produce, uh, what price point to uh, sell those products at, uh, to whom to sell the products, uh, rather than have this organized through Gosplan and Goslav, the previous uh, distribution and planning agencies of the USSR. Uh, and it also allowed by 1988 the founding of private businesses, again, these cooperatives uh, that were called upon to produce consumer goods. Uh, so overall, the project is to improve consumer livelihoods, uh, and this is really drawn, uh, sort of built upon again, uh, on the idea that life should be improving more, uh, but that the command economy that has been built since the 1920s is not giving uh, the same results that a semi-marketized economy would. Um, but again, and I, I really think it's worth emphasizing, what comes out in this comparison is that this is a perspective uh, in Moscow, and this is a perspective from the major cities of the Soviet Union, largely in Russia, uh, or maybe Ukraine, or the other European republics. Uh, it's not one that's shared in places like Siberia or Central Asia, uh, and it's one actually that, that's quite foreign, because in places uh, that are further away from uh, these major cities, life continues to improve under the old system. So the idea that you should change it while it is still creating improvements seems a bit strange. So given that sort of foreignness to places like Tajikistan, how did these kind of the complicated policy, the combination of policies, what impact did this all have in Tajikistan in its, say, first few years of implementation? Well, it's really quite complicated in a way, and, and it's complicated by the fact that the leaders of uh, uh, the Tajik Republic, in fact, 
opposed the reforms. They had no interest in them at all. Uh, from their perspective, the previous system was working. They continued um, to see improvements in people's lives. Uh, you know, and, and it was, from their perspective also, as leaders of the Republic, a quite stable system. They, they really didn't want to see radical change. Uh, so there isn't much movement at all uh, in the first couple of years. Uh, but the first years also include a series of um, somewhat smaller reforms. So if we're looking at 85 to 87, the reforms that are passed have to do with things like making it easier to not fire workers because you can't fire workers in the USSR, but to create uh, a sort of pool of available workers, a sort of Soviet frictional unemployment, if you want. Uh, and and this required local initiative. It required local uh, politicians to motivate uh, enterprises to let workers go or not to hire more workers and to try to be more efficient with the use of their existing workers and so forth. And this is really sort of limited in its implementation in a place like Tajikistan, although you do start to see more people, you know, on in the employment market and less people being rehired than you would see. Uh, but this happens in a, in a way uh, that most people don't experience it. Um, the first real impact in Tajikistan has to do with political change, and it has to do with the removal of Rahmon Nabiyev uh, from his position as the first secretary of the Communist Party of Tajikistan in 1985, uh, which surprises everyone uh, insofar as he had been uh, in the Soviet government in Dushanbe for decades. He had previously been the chairman of the Council of Ministers under Jabor Rasulov, who was a very well-loved first secretary of the Communist Party until his death in 82. Uh, and Nabiyev had become first secretary upon Rasulov's death in 82 and had only been in his position for three years. Uh, but he's removed very suddenly and without much warning uh, by Georgi Grazumovsky, who is uh, an envoy sent by Gorbachev to that end, to Dushanbe in, in 85. And essentially what Razumovsky says is that, you know, the Tajik Republic seemingly does not, you know, have any interest in reform. It wants to stick with the old system, uh, but that is no longer going to be the case. So they need to at least show that they're with the reform program. And that Biev seemingly was not with that reform program. Uh, there's also a long story about background politicking in Dushanbe, and somebody appears to have taken advantage of this new change in leadership in Moscow to remove Nabiyev. But the message remains that you know Moscow wants more adherence to the idea of reform and more adherence to this idea of creating efficiencies and you know new uh, ways of doing business within the Soviet system. But for the, the average person in Tajikistan, really, I don't think they would see much change through 1986, 1987. Um, you know, I, there's a, a, an entertaining anecdote in the book where a journalist goes to the regional city of Gisar in 87, uh, and he, he sees some teenagers who are selling sunflower seeds. Uh, and he asks, you know, what do you think about Piristroika? And the teenagers say, like, what Piristroika? You know, if it exists somewhere, it hasn't managed to shuffle its way down to Gisar. You know, we're still dying of boredom here. Uh, so I don't think most people really understood so much that there was change going on, but this starts to happen in sort of the background. The, the economy is affected by it. Uh, and by 1987 and the passage of these larger laws like uh, the Law on Enterprises, which is in July and summer of 87, uh, and then the law and cooperatives in 88, these, of course, have an impact uh, much more immediately and much more strongly on Tajikistan because 
they are all union legislation that automatically changes how uh, all enterprises, including those in Tajikistan, say, record their profits, how they file taxes, how much tax they can retain themselves. Uh, and this is where you start to see a really major impact. Uh, but for the first couple of years, it's as if, you know, it's happening somewhere else, right? And, and in fact, a lot of people say that like, reform is something we might read about in the newspaper, but it's in Moscow. It's not happening in Dushanbe. So there, there is this already, you know, this this uh, ambiguous position. Is it happening? Is it not happening? You know, in Tajikistan, it's really unclear. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And of course, uncertainty um, is its own sort of destabilizing prospect, especially as that continues and is added on to, um, because in addition to Perestroika, we also have Glasnost. Um, I guess a similar sort of question to what extent was Tajikistan impacted by, again, a central Moscow-driven policy? And there's, again, a, I think a sort of complicated but but ambiguous answer, because uh, in the beginning, because the leaders of the Tajik Republic were largely opposed to reform, however phrased or developed, they're able to do very little uh, in line with Glasnost. Uh, one important caveat about Glasnost is uh, although we think of it as this sort of broader legislative or, or maybe semi-legalized idea of freedom of speech, uh, it's really not that. And in fact, Glasnost is a uh, political policy that isn't really backed by much legislation, uh, but generally uh, directed by the party towards the criticism of Soviet history and the party. Uh, which is very paradoxical, but uh, there is the sense in Moscow around Gorbachev and shared largely by Gorbachev that uh, reform from 86 and 87 is being held back by the Soviet powers that be. And the Soviet powers that be are primarily the planning bodies, the ministries, uh, and the Communist Party of the of the Soviet Union. Um, and so Glasnost is this semi-directed move to allow criticism of the state and primary and, and and more than anything in many ways uh of the party uh, but in a way if you weren't on board with glasnost you could kind of get away with doing nothing because there wasn't a law that said you had to criticize the party certainly the party remains uh, the leading force of soviet society which is even written in the constitution uh, and you would actually have a lot of legal backing to try to defend Soviet history or to defend the agents uh, of Soviet power and, and the Communist Party. Uh, and you see this in the first couple of years, uh, certainly into 87, even you know, off and on into 88, although I'll come to that in a minute, uh, in Dushanbe, where there, you know, the press doesn't have a lot of very critical uh, material, that they're not criticizing the history of Soviet Tajikistan. Uh, there's not a really large willingness to dig into that history. Uh, there is some reprinting of critical articles from Pravda or Izvestia and the central newspapers. Uh, but local initiative uh, journalistically uh, 
uh, and criticism of the leaders of, say, the Tajik Communist Party uh, is very limited. Um, and in fact, this comes to the attention uh, of the advocates of Glasnost in Moscow, and primarily Alexander Yakovlev, who is one of Gorbachev's advisors and one of the main sort of uh, promoters of Glasnost. Uh, and he comes to Dushanbe in 1987 in the spring and starts to excoriate publicly and privately the leaders of the Communist Party of Tajikistan for not doing more to be critical and not promoting critical voices. Uh, and in fact, in a very public forum, he uh, humiliates Kuljukhun Baba Sadikova, who is one of the conservative forces in the Tajik Communist Party. Uh, and promotes Davlat Khudan Nazarov, who was a reformist filmmaker and a very critical voice uh, in the Tajik press uh, and sort of promotes uh, Khudan Nazarov's political career thereafter. And this starts to change, uh, I think, because, uh, or starts to change the general political environment around Glasnost and Dushanbe because there's a sense that Moscow will get involved if you don't do something. And so there at least needs to be uh, an impression uh, of criticism. And so you start to see a few more critical articles. Uh, and in the beginning of 1988, there's a uh, very uh, symbolically important article that's published in Jovononi Tajikistan, which is the, the uh, local newspaper of the Tajik wing of the Komsomol, the communist youth uh, movement associated with the Communist Party. Uh, and this is an article by a man named Mirahim Mirahim, uh, sorry, Mirbobo Mirahimov. And uh, Mirbobo Mirahimov uh, writes a long, essentially, diatribe against uh, the history of Soviet development in Tajikistan and against the ways that uh, traditionally Tajik uh, or cities seen as traditionally Tajik in Tajikistan, such as Samarkand and Bukhara, became part of Uzbekistan, and how the Tajik language in Uzbekistan is not being promoted, and so forth. Uh, and in many regards, these are issues that had been brought up before, and they are issues that uh, were not new for the Tajik intelligentsia, but they are brought together by uh, Mirahimov in uh, a, a synthetic way that creates a broader criticism of the Soviet state and of its representatives in Dushanbe. This is very new for Tajikistan. It's very scandalous. Uh, the editor of the newspaper uh, loses his job. The a number of supporters in the Tajik government also find themselves out of jobs. Uh, the newspaper has to write uh, an article criticizing the article that it had just published and so forth. So it's a, it's a very controversial event, but it also demonstrates this idea that there is a change happening. Uh, and then you will see over 1988, 89, uh, increasingly uh, open criticism uh, of the leaders of the Communist Party of Tajikistan. Uh, in 19, early 1989, there's the founding of a political club, which is called the Rubauru, which is face-to-face, -face, uh, also under the Komsomol uh, in Tajikistan, which is... Uh, more or less intended to create a forum of debate between the public and the leaders of the republic, uh, but more or less generally devolves into uh, members of the Komsomol criticizing very publicly and very loudly the leaders for what they are doing or not doing in the republic. Um, later through 1989, uh, you see the passage of a law on Tajik language, which makes Tajik the uh, official language uh, of the Republic alongside Russian. Uh, 
uh, and with the ultimate idea of, of phasing out Russia and then making Tajik legal uh, language uh, a government business and so forth. Uh, and then you also have the founding of the first political party uh, outside of the Communist Party, which is Orastakhez, which calls itself a national movement, but is essentially uh, a political party. Now, all of these things, in many ways, actually uh, were driven by interventions in Moscow, right? Urubaru is partly driven by the sense uh, that they need to create a, a, a they're called neformalne organization, sort of an informal organization, some sort of political club to fit with the expectations from Moscow. The passage of the law and language is also seen uh, as something in line with what other republics are doing and what, what Moscow is promoting. Uh, and in fact, there's direct intervention from Moscow uh, suggesting that they should pass the law. Uh, and when Rastakhez is founded, it's also founded with the sense that there are, are these new democratic movements happening uh, in Moscow and that Tajikistan has to follow in line with these things. Uh, so you see that Glasnost is there, but it's it's in many ways uh, as much driven by outside forces as by local forces. There are local actors who are very much interested in this criticism of the party and the state, uh, of independent political movements and of independent political voices. But they're often given a great deal of, of backing from Moscow and often very explicitly. So all of these sort of developments that you're describing in the last few answers, um, are definitely suggesting that this fragile but stable status quo that we talked about earlier is, of course, under even more pressure by the time we get through 1989. Um, but there's still a little bit of a gap between sort of what you're talking about here and the violence that erupts in February 1990. So can you tell us about what happened in February 1990 and kind of what, where that last... I suppose the jump between what you're describing here and an outbreak of mass violence comes from? Yeah, there is uh, certainly a, a missing piece. And that missing piece, I think, in many ways is what's happening with the economy. Um, and what's happening in the economy in 1989 is recession. So the Soviet economy goes into recession in 1989. Um, this is not initially observed because uh, one of the things that the reforms passed in 87 and 88 had done is to allow enterprises uh, to change uh, and to choose what they would produce uh, and to essentially um, boost their profits at the expense of production. How does this work? Well, uh, if you take, for example, the uh, Tajik uh, sewing factory, Tajik Atlas, which was a very uh, well-known, quite profitable uh, um, producer of silk fabric. Um, and it's one that I've looked at the, the tax returns and the profit filings uh, from this period. If you look at their numbers uh, from 87, 88, 89 and on, what happens immediately in 1988 is they start to produce less cloth, but they start to produce more expensive cloth with a higher profit margin. Uh, and they start to, in fact, hoard profits. Uh, so in terms of actual overall production, uh, some uh, economists have suggested that uh, in 1989, uh, sort of year-on-year -year volume of consumer goods production was down by 20 to 25%, uh, even though uh, overall monetary value of goods across the USSR was up by, again, 20 to 25%. Uh, so you have... Uh, numbers that don't line up at all. Uh, in, and, in, and one way uh, that's been possible to reconstruct uh, the actual existence of 
uh, practical recession is to look at tax receipts and the actual production figures uh, in material terms. But if we look at what's being produced for consumers uh, on an aggregate basis, uh, again, because they're acting on Enterprises are acting largely like Tajikat Loss. They're producing more expensive goods, uh, but less of them. Um, we're looking at overall reduction in the availability of goods. So people in 1989 uh, really start to find that they, they can't buy the same things that they used to. They're still getting paid their salaries. But in a place like Tajikistan, for the first time, you have this experience where you have money, um, but you don't have anything to buy. And it is also at this time you start to see quite significantly the return of deficits, of shortages, of queues for basic goods. Uh, certain goods have to be bought on uh, the basis of uh, quotas, right? You'll get a, a talon, a ticket for a certain amount of, uh, say, rice or oil or flour or basic goods that you can buy. This gets much worse as the years goes on, but you really start to see the initial uh, move towards deficits in 89. So people's lives are getting worse, right? And they actually are significantly uh, and noticeably worse in 1989. Uh, at the same time, it's really unclear why this is happening. The Tajik uh, Communist Party doesn't want to talk about reform. They're not openly discussing the need for reform. They're not justifying it to the population in a way that you would see in Moscow, where the leaders of the USSR and the leaders of the Russian Republic are really promoting reform and they're trying to foment uh, interest in the reform and support for it. This doesn't happen at all in Tajikistan. So you have economic recession, you have a loss of economic livelihood, uh, which is even worse in rural areas, it should be said generally, because these are they were worse off to begin with and they were worse served by central distribution. Um, at the same time that you don't have any clear explanation of why this is happening from the state. And into this sort of volatile vacuum, you have the first opposition politicians. So I mentioned Lorastechez, which is the national movement that's founded in 1989. Uh, this is led by Tohir Abdujabor, who was an economist. Uh, and it also involves people like Mirbobo Mirahimov, who I mentioned, who was uh, in fact a philosopher, but who had become famous as a journalist. Uh, and as a sort of historical critic of the of Soviet development in Tajikistan. Uh, they enter the realm uh, in sort of the fall of 1989, uh, along with a few other sort of less important politicians. Uh, and they begin to provide criticism where uh, none is previously available. And their criticism is very harsh, right? They suggest that radical reform is necessary, that the Tajik government has been blocking this reform, that, you know, the, the economy is going to continue to go down, that livelihoods are going to continue to go down unless something changes. So you have this, this absence of state response, uh, economic degradation, and the beginnings of a sort of very radical program and radical discourse about what should be done about the situation. Uh, and all of this is building up over the latter half of 1989. Then you get 19, uh, February 1990, and all of these things continue and they get worse. And in fact, uh, Rastachez's politicians are going around the republic promoting their reform view because there are elections set in late, 19, uh, late February 1990 uh, for the uh, Supreme Soviet uh, of the Tajik SSR. So this is essentially the parliament of the Tajik Republic. Uh, and Rastechez is running a, lar a good number uh, of candidates. They intend to work as an opposition bloc in 
the parliament. So their discourse is very much uh, on view. Uh, Tohira Abdujabor is, uh, say, on the streets in Dushanbe with, uh, you know, with meetings against the Communist Party in front of the Communist Party headquarters. Uh, and this is all in the background. Then in the beginning of February 1990, rumors start to spread uh, that housing is going to be provided free of charge to refugees uh, of Armenian background, uh, largely from Baku, where there had been uh, ethnic pogroms against uh, the Armenian population in January 1990. Uh, and a very small number, uh, in fact, of Armenian re refugees had been brought to Dushanbe uh, and were living with their relatives, essentially. Uh, and this was part of a union-wide program that's developed in Moscow to find housing uh, and to provide support uh, for the individuals who had been displaced by the ethnic violence in Baku. Uh, in fact, the amount of money that's provided to these individuals by the Republican government is minuscule. I think it's less than a thousand rubles in total. Uh, you know, it, it really insignificant, but it is mentioned on Republican television. And this begins a series of rumors about the state essentially helping outsiders. Uh, and this is very offensive to many people in the Republic because it seems as though they are being put at a disadvantage while outsiders are receiving help. And this aligns with all of the other frustrations and all of the other issues that people are facing. Uh, and people begin to come into Dushanbe from outlying, uh, right. only the outlying districts from outside of Dushanbe largely, uh, or from the edges of Dushanbe, uh, to protest against this uh, seeming injustice. Uh, and they do so en masse, sort of on their own. It seems to be largely undirected. It's not organized in any fashion. Uh, they demand to speak with the leaders uh, of the Communist Party. Those leaders agree to meet with them. Uh, and it seems to alleviate the violence. But then what you see is that moves are made both by the opposition and by the leaders of the Republican government uh, that escalate the situation very quickly. Uh, the Republican government is scared by having hundreds, if not thousands of people demanding action on their part. And although they do take action to investigate, right, they promise that they're going to investigate and make sure that nobody's getting housing when they shouldn't. Um, they do take this action. They scare a lot of Armenians. A lot of Armenians run away from Dushanbe unnecessarily. Uh, they also call for backup from Moscow, uh, and they ask for uh, troops from the internal ministry. So in the USSR, uh, army troops formally are not legally allowed to be deployed for use within the USSR, but the interior ministry has its own body of semi-military or paramilitary troops. These are called Nutrinevaiska, or internal troops. Uh, and they ask for troops to be sent to Dushanbe to help quell the crowds, and they also uh, ask the KGB to send their spetsnaz or special forces, uh, and they send a group of alpha, which are these sort of special forces. Uh, and these arrive in Dushanbe. In fact, the alpha arrive before anyone else. Uh, and it's in fact these paramilitary units and the alpha units that arrive in Dushanbe that begin the cycle of violence, and they commit. They are the ones that first shoot on the crowd. Uh, as it returns the next day, essentially to check whether its demands had been fulfilled. Uh, and at the same uh, time, opposition politicians who had been largely outside of the city at the time of the development of the, the, these protests return and see an opportunity. So you have the state responding to the threat of violence with violence, uh, and you have opposition politicians uh, seeing an opportunity 
to develop their political base, uh, and they uh, essentially become the face of these crowds of thousands, uh, which become violent uh, rioters. And this lasts for three or four days uh, in Dushanbe, and in, in the second week of February, uh, it causes the deaths of uh, scores, uh, well, let's say tens, between I think 20 and 25, there are various estimates. Uh, people die, hundreds of people are injured, millions of rubles of damage are done to Dushanbe, and it's this just explosion of violence at that point. Uh, it had started as this, this sort of, at least in the very beginning, it's it's peaceful, but loud, but riotous, but angry. Uh, but once violence uh, is done, uh, it just continues for days, and it seems uncontrollable. Uh, and it is only ever controlled, essentially, through the use of violence and through the threat of violence uh, with the backing uh, of the troops sent down. Uh, to Dushanbe, uh, as requested by uh, the leaders of the, of the Tajik Republic. Uh, but it, I'd say since 1990, there's, there's been a lot of controversy about these events. There's still a lot of debate about why they happened, were they organized, how were they organized. But I think the, the important link to be made is everything that had built up for years before then. And this is sort of the outpouring of all of this economic and social frustration, the sense that things are getting worse, but nobody really tells you why. Uh, and when they start to tell you why, it sounds like it's only going to get even worse. Uh, and this is the explosion of violence that you see in February 1990. And if that wasn't already kind of enough things that seemed to be causing uncertainty and potentially getting worse... Um, Tajikistan becomes independent in 1991, at least on paper. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about kind of the reasons why it's not quite so simple to talk about Tajikistan's independence? Yeah, this is also quite fascinating. So Tajikistan declares its independence on September 9th, 1991. Uh, and this is done in a period of high political drama and tension in, in Dushanbe. So uh, we know that in August 1991, there is the famous Pooch, where Gorbachev is held prisoner in his dacha in Crimea, uh, and the uh, leaders of the so-called Gekechepe, the State Committee uh, for the Extreme Situation, right, uh, are in control for three days in Moscow. They bring troops onto the streets of Moscow. Uh, they try to, you know, set back essentially the clock on reforms, uh, and in many ways they're trying to stop uh, a, a new a union treaty that had been developed by Gorbachev and nine of the republics, including Tajikistan, which was supposed to reset uh, the union in a way and to provide a new basis for it, but actually in many ways undermined um, the central power of the Soviet Union. So those. Individuals uh, who were part of the state committee uh, or the Kikachipa uh, essentially saw no role for themselves in this new state because it was very unclear what the, the Soviet center was going to look like. Uh, after. So this is one of the motivations for the Pooch. There are many and there's a large his, historiography and literature about why it happened. But this happens in Moscow. Uh, they send a lot of directives all over the USSR. They receive them in Dushanbe. They have no idea what's going on in Dushanbe. They read these directives they're not even properly put together. They're missing stamps, right? This is a very important issue when you're reading, you know, a directive from Moscow. So they essentially do nothing. But people like Kahor Makamov, who was then the president uh, of Tajikistan, so they'd also created a presidency to follow in line with the other republics, 
he remained the leader of the Communist Party of Tajikistan, uh, was generally opposed to the reforms that had been happening for years. He was one of the you know leaders of the Tajik Republic who had never understood why reform was happening from the beginning. So there are people in Moscow starting to say we're going to roll back the clock on reforms. For Makamov, in fact, this is you know not a negative development, but he makes no comment. He makes no move. Three days later, the putsch collapses. Um, and uh, more or less, Makamov pretends like he never supported it, but it comes out that he had supported it, and this becomes a political liability, uh, especially because of Yeltsin's rise in power in Moscow and the idea that Russia is now becoming a uh, newly democratizing, maybe, or a newly uh, free state that's you know somehow going to transcend the USSR, and that this is where political power. So Makamov becomes undesirable uh, as a figurehead for Tajikistan, and he's removed at the end of August. Uh, and his successor, Khadridin Aslonov, uh, is a sort of political novice. He doesn't really know how to operate, and he's under a lot of pressure. And so he he signs this Declaration of Independence uh, on September 9th, but it. It's very unclear what Aslonov thinks this is going to mean. It's also very unclear what Tajikistan thinks this is going to mean because they declare independence. The vast majority of republics have declared independence. The Soviet government in Moscow still exists. Uh, the central ministry still exists. Uh, the centralized military of the USSR still exists. And none of the centralized Soviet agencies recognizes Tajik independence, or in fact, the independence of almost any uh, uh, Soviet republics. They're declaring independence, but no international state is, is, is recognizing them either. So they're independent, but they're still part of the USSR. Uh, and in fact, shortly thereafter, uh, in uh, September 1991, uh, the now independent Soviet state, or sorry, Tajik Soviet state, or maybe just Tajik state, right? They're confused. I'm confused. Uh, appeals to Moscow for military troops to help quell uh, unending protests. So the same protests uh, that had in fact helped to lead to Makamov's removal in August are continuing, they're unending. Uh, the political parties that had multiplied in 1991 after uh, Rastekhez had sort of paved the ground for them uh, are on the streets. We have the Democratic Party of Tajikistan at this point. We have uh, the party of Islamic revival of Tajikistan, uh, which in English, sorry, is normally called the uh, Islamic revival or Islamic, yeah, we'll say Islamic revival party of Tajikistan, um, but it has a number of, of different acronyms. At any rate, IRPT, DPT, Rastakhez, uh, you have a, an organization from Pamir Lali, Badakhshon. So all of these political parties are on the street. They're all protesting. Uh, they can't get rid of them. So uh, in fact, the government of Tajikistan asks for help from Moscow. They say, can you send troops? Uh, Moscow says no, although it still treats Tajikistan as part of its territory. Uh, the opposition also appeals to Gorbachev and to Yeltsin personally and asks for intervention into the pol uh, political happenings in Dushanbe, the capital of a nominally independent state. Uh, and in this case, Gorbachev agrees and he sends two emissaries, uh, Anatoly Sobchak, uh, who's famous as the mayor of St. Petersburg in the 1990s, uh, and Eugeny Velikhov, who was the 
uh, I think, vice uh, president of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR. So two very well-known figures, very Muscovite figures. And these Muscovite figures, in fact, are the ones who are treated as the final arbiter of authority in, in, in Dushanbe after it had declared independence. And they're the ones who broker a deal between the government and the protesters uh, that allow for presidential elections in November 1991. Um and even in November and December 1991, after Rahmon Nabiyev, who had been previously forced out of power, uh, but who had come back and in fact joined the Supreme Soviet in 1990, and then gained uh, a great deal of support in the Supreme Soviet in 1990-91, uh, Nabiyev is then elected president in 1991, in November. Uh, but even then, in November and December 1991, as the USSR is physically collapsing, as the leaders of Russia and Belarus and Ukraine are uh, agreeing upon the new you know, order to come uh, after the USSR, uh, Nabiyev and the people around him are still acting as though the USSR exists. They're still calling Yeltsin. They're still trying to appeal to the central ministries, which barely exist uh, in Moscow. And they have no conception of what it is to really be independent. Uh, and in complete factual terms, the state becomes independent at the end of December 1991 because the USSR ceases to exist. All of its institutions are ended formally. By that point, uh, the Commonwealth of Independent States uh, is signed into existence by most of the post-Soviet states, including Tajikistan in Almaty, and they are independent. But they still really don't know, and they still spend a great deal of the first half of 1992 trying to work out what it is. They don't develop an independent military policy. They don't depend, develop a very clear economic strategy. Uh, they spend a lot of their time appealing to Moscow or to other foreign partners, the United States, Pakistan, Iran, for economic aid, for some sort of additional support to rebuild their status quo. Uh, but the factual elements and the factual pieces of statehood, agencies, ministries, uh, a national guard, uh, some sort of institutions... Uh, are built very slowly and very ineffectively. So the idea of what it means to be a state and to be an independent state uh, is very unclear. It's in fact uh, almost as if they can't, the leaders of Tajikistan can't conceive of what this means at that point. So I think you've now proven the point, right? You mentioned earlier at the beginning that um, it was thinking from the perspective of the 1980s, it'd be very unexpected for Tajikistan to um, run into any trouble, to have outbreaks of violence. It was the quiet part. And yet everything you've explained to us since then um, is a pretty convincing picture for why, as you talk about in the book, kind of the entirety of social order collapses um, after the point you've kind of brought us up to. Given the many different factors running around, the many areas of confusion, uncertainty and protest, is there anything else we need to understand to figure out kind of exactly why, when and how this all really collapsed further? Well, I think the, the thing to emphasize in many ways is that, you know, Tajikistan was stable, it was peaceful, it was operational within a broader Soviet system, right? It existed within that system and it was dependent upon that system. At the same time, the leaders of the Soviet Republic, whether it's Kahor Makamov uh, or Rahmon Nabiyev or the other uh, leaders of the Communist Party of Tajikistan or even the wave that become uh, influential uh, like Safar Ali Kenjaev and others in, in early 1992, they also 
knew how to operate within the Soviet system. And when that Soviet system stops functioning, when it stops providing the level of social support that the population expects, when it stops providing the consumer goods that the population expects, when people's basic expectations about employment disappear, right? Because the the economy starts to operate from 1989, 1990, and certainly by 1991 in a way where you don't have job guarantees, where enterprises can not hire people, where they can in fact fire people and act its semi-private businesses, where uh, cooperative businesses can do essentially what they want as long as they operate within uh, a quite a broad legal field uh, 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 of economic activity. Uh, but they can buy what they want and sell what they want and produce goods or not produce goods and hire people and fire them, et cetera. So this creates uh, this absolute mismatch between what happens on the ground and what people had expected even a year ago or two years ago, right? Their, their expectations uh, of reality and their expectations of livelihood and the actual result of, of their say economic activity or their livelihood completely bifurcate they, they don't line up in a way that they used to um and there's one quote that i really love from a man named mirzo hakimov who was a cotton picker he had served in afghanistan he'd gone back to his kolkhoz he'd been working in the kolkhoz and in agriculture and he continued into 1991 but He's one of the people in 1992 who support the protesters, support the opposition politicians. He's on the street in 1992 uh, from March. Uh, and somebody asks him essentially, like, why are you here? And he says, well, you know, it used to be that I would go and I'd pick the cotton and I wasn't living that well, but I supported my family and I'd go home and, you know, I bought what I needed. He says, now, you know, I pick the cotton. I get paid a very small amount of money. There's inflation. I can't buy very much with that money. Um, but the people who take the cotton from me sell it, and they make a great deal of money, and they buy very expensive consumer goods. He says they buy pretty coats. Um, he says, look, you, the journalist he's speaking to, you have one of these pretty coats. The politician has a pretty coat. I don't have one, but I'm the one who picked the cotton. And there is such a breakdown in what had been the expectation in the Soviet system, which is that if you do an honest day's labor, right, if you work, you will get your salary and maybe you won't live very well, but you will live okay. Um, and now what is happening where the people who work uh, are not living okay, uh, and certainly not in the rural areas of Tajikistan, and the people who are not demonstrably working seem to be living better. So you have this uh, just breakdown uh, in uh the sense of what social justice should be. Uh, and this aligned really well for me with the work, uh, for example, of Ted Gur, who was a theorist of sort of political violence and a revolution. And one of the things Gur really emphasizes is that it's at these moments where people's expectations of life and their real ability to achieve them fall apart, that violence is likely to occur, that revolutionary movements take off, that mobilization can happen. Uh, and I think this is exactly what you're seeing in the spring of 1992 in Tajikistan. Uh, and it's the reason why there's quite so much support for opposition politicians when they essentially decide to open a political battle against the government of Tajikistan. And that political battle then grows into something much worse. Uh, and in fact, into war uh, by May 1992. So... 
You spoke earlier that um, Tajikistan became independent kind of not really of their own free will, right? It was the collapse of the Soviet Union that kind of, well, there is no bigger thing to be part of. You are sort of de facto independent to a sense. And you've just described for us um, the consequences of kind of all of these escalating things put together. And yet, as the title of your book suggests, right, Moscow's heavy shadow... In fact, you talk about it's from this period that Moscow's shadow on Tajikistan grew, quote, thicker and heavier, even though at this point, Tajikistan is now technically independent, kind of whether they like it or not. So why do you think it is that Moscow's influence um, actually increases here? I think there there are a number of of intertwined reasons for this, but I, I think what's helpful to understand how this happens and why is to look at a particular episode, um, which is uh, the arrival of Yegor Gaidar, uh, who was then the acting uh, prime minister uh, of the Russian Federation, to Dushanbe in October 1992. Uh, And so October 1992 is already uh, five or six months into, uh, let's say five probably to be fair, five months into uh, the Tajik Civil War, which had sort of begun as, as as a... open conflict in, in May. Um, it had reached a sort of stalemate. There had been an extreme level of violence over the summer, but it had been largely inconclusive. Um, the, uh, you know, the country had been fragmented into the South, which is led by uh, a so-called People's Front uh, based out of Kulyab. Uh, and then the central part of the country is controlled by uh, a central government, but a central government that included many elements of the opposition uh, that had come to partial power in May, uh, well, April and then early May 1992. Uh, So the state is dysfunctional, it's broken in half, it's in a state of warfare. uh, And Yegor Gaidar decides, while he's at a summit in Bishkek, to get on a plane and go to Dushanbe. So he does. He shows up in Dushanbe with a relatively small contingent of security. He's met at the airport, he reports, by uh, a very disparate uh, group of militias, all of whom alternatively point their guns at him and at each other and don't seem to trust each other at all, and him certainly not. Uh, But they bring him to what remains of the central government in Dushanbe. He meets with uh, the deputy chairman uh, of uh, the council ministers, uh, who is essentially uh, the sort of person in charge of day-to-day operations in Dushanbe, which again doesn't have much of a functioning government. Um, and then he goes around the country. He goes to Kulyab, he goes to Kurgan Tube, he flies around, he goes to the war zone. And he, in his, in a memoir later, describes this as a time when it, Russia needed to make a decision. They needed to pick a side to sort of decide the problem. Uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, the Southern People's Front begins uh, a very successful operational drive to Dushanbe. By November 1992, uh, the People's Front has essentially conquered the central part of the country. Uh, they've managed to uh, reunite most of the country under its nominal control. Uh, uh, of course, Pamir remains outside of the control of the government for many years, uh, and there's many, many episodes of warfare and violence that continue. So the civil war continues very much, but uh, this is a very decisive moment, October to November. It's also when uh, Emom Malik Rahman becomes the leader 
uh, of Tajikistan for the first time backed by this uh, Southern People's Front. And this is all in many ways linked to this idea that Russia has made a decision, that they, they've come to uh, a determination of who they should back in the conflict. And everyone seems to accept this in Tajikistan. Uh, there are multiple accounts uh, from Tajik sources about Gaidar's period. They all treat him with a great deal of respect. They all uh, accept his views. They all want to support his position. So Gaidar, even though there is no actual authority right, left from the USSR over Tajikistan, it's a completely independent state with its own essential problems, they still accept that an emissary from Moscow is the final arbiter of power. And this repeats the same story that we saw in 1991 and in 1990 and throughout the Soviet period. But even more, right, there is essentially no local actor that wants to stand up to right, the decisions being made by Moscow or maybe no one that has the authority, nobody has the uh, ability to do so. And I think that this is the uh, partly because there was a complete breakdown uh, of state order. Uh, it's also because Russia retained uh, a military base in the country, uh, and that military base uh, was an important actor for a number of reasons in the Civil War, um, both in terms of protecting important infrastructure, but also at times uh, not directly participating, but having some of its tanks or military hardware being stolen or not stolen, but ending up in the hands of various parts uh, or, or, or various militias uh, and warlords involved in the civil war. Uh, so Russia really was the military power here. It really was the arbiter uh, of strength. Uh, again, the Tajik leaders, whether they were in the south or whether they were in Dushanbe at the time, still were not entirely sure how to operate as an independent state. They had no experience of it. Uh, and being able to appeal to uh, an emissary from Moscow or the political authority of Moscow, I think, was very, uh, in a way, not only convenient, but it, it gave them a way of understanding their place in a political system. Uh in fact, there was nobody else offering help. So Russia was the only power that was coming in to decide the situation, to come to a decision about how, you know, this might play out or where its backing should be. Uh, you know, the Tajik government tried to appeal to to many other states, but in fact, nobody made any effort to get involved in the civil war. Um, and you also have the fact that this is repeating in many ways the same order that you saw in the USSR. But it's without the assumption of development funding. So during the USSR, there was a sort of quid pro quo involved in the relationship between Dushanbe and Moscow. Moscow was the authority, uh, uh, was the, the arbiter of authority. They were the ones who uh, always made the final decisions. They were the ones who decided what should, where money should be spent, what, who should be in power, etc. But in exchange, they were providing developmental support. As I discussed before, the support was not great by any world standard. It certainly didn't provide a standard of living that was even high by Soviet standards. It kept the Republic agrarian, but they were providing this social development support, financial support. Um, with the collapse of socialism, with the collapse of the USSR, this is not there. So essentially, Russia doesn't have to give anything in return, right? There is no expectation. Uh, but the relationship of authority in Moscow and uh, a lack of authority in Dushanbe remains. Uh, and in fact, I think this continues at least until the 1990s and quite possibly until the recent past. 
where Russia is able to exert its authority uh, over Dushanbe, over actually many parts of the former USSR, uh, building upon this existing relationship, um, but has actually improved its situation in the sense that it is no longer obligated uh, to pay for the development of these former outlying territories. Hmm. That makes rather a lot of sense. And I think there's probably listeners who are drawing parallels to more recent events involving Russia as well. Um, We have come essentially to the end of the book, but I do have one final question for you. Um, Now that this book is available for people to read and really get into the details if they want to, is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us? Um. I mean, I, I have a new project, which is actually on Soviet gerontology, uh, which is the science uh, of aging. So I'm trying to uh, understand how Soviet scientists uh, and doctors understood aging, how they uh, viewed aging as part of the human life cycle, what was known as ontogenesis, the process of human development uh, from birth to death, including aging. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to pick apart how, if at all, this conception of aging uh, was different uh, than, say, that which is developed in the United States or in Britain or other parts of the West in the 20th century, or whether it is part of a broader uh, sort of global intellectual history and exchange. Uh, but this is very different, in fact. Uh, it, it has almost, uh, other than a uh, connection to the USSR, uh, very little overlap, uh, I think, with with this um, history of the collapse of the USSR and the violence that came from it. Uh, I'm happy to say that it is, in many ways, uh, a much more uh, positive <laughs> history to be writing because it really allows me to talk about uh, ways in which uh, the USSR was actually surprisingly promoting things like healthy aging and uh, inclusivity for aging populations within the USSR. So uh, I found it to be um, a a welcome respite, I think, from some of the violence that I had previously been looking at. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Best of luck with that project. Fascinating, but yes, also um, somewhat more positive sounding than uh, this one. This book, however, is incredibly important. So again, listeners, um, the title of the book we've been discussing, Moscow's Heavy Shadow, The Violent Collapse of the USSR, published by Cornell University Press. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Brenda. It was my pleasure.